Welcome to episode two of Adversarial Learning. Joel here. Welcome to episode two. Uh, we're glad to have you with us. We're glad to be here. Um, I hope you enjoyed the new theme music this week. I worked pretty hard on it. Um, and today we've got a, a really interesting episode for you. We've got the tallest data scientist, Tim Hopper, with us. And we're going to talk about data science and about uh, being tall and about a variety of other things that are, that are all pretty good. So uh, let's do a word from our sponsor and then we'll get into things. Adversarial learning is brought to you by Data Science from Scratch, First Principles with Python. If you're looking for a book about data science and you'd like it to be from scratch and you want it to be about first principles and you'd like it to be in Python, then Data Science from Scratch, First Principles with Python is the book you're looking for. Available from Amazon.com, O'Reilly.com, or wherever books are sold. Data Science from Scratch. One of these days we'll get a, a real sponsor and then we won't have to have my book being the sponsor, uh, although I like recording those uh, those sponsorship things, so uh, maybe we'll keep doing that too. Okay, uh, on to the episode. Rolling. Hey there, I'm Joel. Joel. I'm Andrew, and today we have a very special guest named Tim Hopper, who is otherwise known as the tallest data scientist. Uh, we Good met afternoon. Him. Yeah. We met, uh, we met you through the community, and uh, we found that uh, you, were, you were fun to talk to, so we're very happy to have you on the show. Thank Wanna you. Tell us, tell us about yourself. I'm a data scientist, I guess, in North Carolina. I work for a company at the moment called Distill Networks, which is a bot detection and mitigation tool for uh, websites. We help filter malicious bot traffic, and our team works on analysis and improvement of that product. Uh, a typical question we like to ask is, uh, so how did you get into this field? Where did you come from and, and what, what brought you to where you are now? Yeah, so like you, Andrew, I studied math um, yeah. as an undergrad. Like Joel too, right? Yep. Uh, also like, like Joel. Um, and I was always, I've always been into computers since I was a kid and I wasn't that interested in programming in college, but, uh, through sort of a roundabout way, I ended up as a master's student in operations research okay. and was interested in sort of how math and computers could help solve real world everyday problems out, outside of what I thought of like traditional engineering problems. What, um, it, what is operations research for those of us who don't know? Well, no one really knows, but the, the idea is uh, applying math models to sort of like business problems and industrial problems as opposed to like what I think of as more like hard engineering, like thinking of materials and, and building things. So this is like optimizing processes and supply chains and schedules and things like that. Yeah, I, I, I had never, I, I'd never known what it was about until this year or so. Um, 
and some of some of our, my newest colleagues came from an operations research focused firm. Uh, and so what I'm learning is that there are a lot of things in common with you know with the kinds of things I've I've typically done in this in this field, and then uh, with with more of a focus on discrete problems. So I mean discrete uh, framing of uh, solutions. So looking at things that are like more you know looking for integer values rather than uh, continuous or you know floats or whatever. When I was an undergrad, I went to an REU as a, a research experience for undergraduates, as, as math people tend to do. And they had a guest speaker who talked to us about operations research. Uh, and the only thing I remember from their talk was the case study about a skyscraper uh, that didn't have enough elevators. And so they had big backups of the elevators every morning. And they brought in the operations research team to figure out how to fix it. But they were using some math and then some like, let's have the elevators leave while the doors are still closing and let's hire, you know, big burly sumo wrestlers to like shove people into the elevators and things like that. So that's what I always thought operations research was. I, I, I thought where you're going with that is the famous story that people tell is when people were studying that and then they installed uh, mirrors at the elevator, like outside the elevators and people got, got so distracted just looking at the mirrors that they stopped caring about waiting for the elevators. That's a very like popular hmm. story. I haven't heard that one. But um, back back to me. Um, right back to you. <laughs> uh, so I was in grad school here at North Carolina State, and um, in 2011, uh, and I started. I was getting more involved on Twitter and like following this new thing called data science and. Like seeing people like Hillary Mason and and Drew Conway and John White who were had something some website back then Dataists or something that they had, um, and and realized that what was being touted as op, as data science was really like the same thing I was interested in for operations research, which is like math and um, computers and computation applied to real world problems, and it appeared to me that data science wasn't stuck in the past, which uh, is a criticism that could possibly be levied against the operations research field. Got it, got it. And, and so how tall are you? Uh, I'm six feet nine inches, unless you ask my mom, I'm 6'10", which is taller than Drew Conway, as I am very proud of. And Doug Cutting. How tall is he? I think he's like six seven, and Drew is six eight, or something like that. Got it, got it. So you are the tallest. As far as I know, I'm the tallest data scientist. Fantastic. So uh, when I first uh, got to know you on Twitter, actually before I got to know you, uh, when I first encountered you, um, I was actually kind of scared of you because you had this really uh, frightening avatar pic with like a Harley Davidson bandana and uh, and a scowl. Yeah, was that was that by design? Um, it, it was my Twitter profile picture for, for like four years. Um, and, uh, so I'm wearing a, a Harley Davidson bandana and I had cut my beard into a Fu Manchu. Um, and I just, I, so I'm, I'm a very tall and <laughs> do you want to try and get Andrew back? I was enjoying going without him. I can still hear you, Andrew. You can? Yes. I can hear you too. 
Have you heard me groaning and, and bitching? Um, <laughs> no more than usual. Okay. Okay, cool. Well, let's just go with it. Cause I, this, so the interface tells me I was muted and then unmuted. And no, it never unmuted me. But okay. So sorry about that. Yeah, no. I hear you the whole time. Okay. So, so, uh, so Tim, uh, do you play basketball? Uh, I am the worst basketball player of all time. One time when I was 18, I was put onto a, uh, a basketball team when I worked at a summer camp, and uh, I was the starting center, and we got the ball, and we got it down to uh, our side of the court, and someone passed the ball to me, and I was so shocked that he passed it to me that it just hit me in the face and fell to the ground. Oh, boy. But, so, but uh, it's weird because you're tall. Do you have How a... How am I supposed to answer that? I don't know. Well, I mean, there's... I think people might be interested in your blog about how many times a day or a month you get. Yeah, so about. in 2015, I wrote down for the entire year, every... I tried to write every single thing a stranger said to me or within my hearing about my height. <laughs> um, and I work at home, so I... You know, I'm not even out in public all that much. I'm a, a fairly... I'm kind of a homebody, but um, I can't remember the total. I think I had 157 things that people said, which I, I have shared on Tumblr. Um, over one year? Yeah, over one year, which is, uh, you know, if I spent a day, my days in public around other people, I suspect it would be significantly Probably higher. a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. Most and of them come from the grocery store, actually. And now, is this data set publicly available? It is publicly available, ready for natural language processing. Have you done any of that? I have not. I think it does some pretty natural clustering, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, most people say, uh, are you tall? There's a lot of... Re <laughs> yeah, or, or, or how tall are you? The, honestly, the thing that drives me the most crazy is people say how tall are you? And then they say, I bet you get asked that a lot, but people aren't yeah. aware that I also get asked a lot. I bet you get asked that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what really it's, just like drives me over the edge. It's like the, uh, I forget his name, Carrie, uh, Carrie Grant. I think somebody asked him at the, you know, said at the ball game, I really hate to ask you for this. And he said, well, then don't. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> yes. You can, you can not. And it's really not, uh, like, I'm happy to talk to people about it, but it's really that it's so boring because people just, like, say the same stupid things over yep. and over and over. Yeah. What's the, what's, every, the, what's the best one that anyone's ever said? Uh, you can't ask me that without like, giving me a little time to think about that. Uh, there were a couple of funny ones I read. Uh, but, I, yeah, that's escaping me, too. One, one that people have particularly appreciated is... Uh, um, where I just wrote something in Korean with hand gestures indicating great height, uh -huh. which people find that one very funny. That was at a Korean grocery store. It's a universal, universal topic. Yes. Once I was in Mexico and I was just walking down the street and this, I was with a group of people and this guy like grabbed me by the arm and pulled me into his store and is pointing at me and talking about me in Spanish, which I don't speak to his, his friends while my, my friends continued to walk down the street in Mexico. 
I'm going, I'm going to Mexico next month. I need to learn Spanish. You, you reminded me of that. Thank you. Oh, you'll, you'll get it. It's easy. I know. Just, I, I, read, I, just, just get a phrase book. You're fine. I, I studied it in high school, but that was a long time ago. Yeah. And mostly I can name like parts of the classroom, which I don't think will come in on that handy. Donde esta la biblioteca? Oh, there you go. Yeah. That's, yeah. See how you I never know. Just, you never know. I've still got it. Um, yeah, no, if I if I end up needing to go to the library, then it's the wrong kind of vacation. <laughs> so, yeah, so, the, the, you have another thing online that's that's pretty amusing for folks too, and it's uh, it's related to to the topic you know that we're talking about, and that's the the a, a robot that answers the question: Should you get a PhD? Yeah, which, so people love the, that. There's the the Twitter account. Uh, which is, I think it's, should you get PhD? Should I get PhD? No, should you get PhD? Should, should you get PhD? Uh, which the, the bot actually isn't running at the moment, but it used to mostly just tweet no over and over. And then sometimes it would say uh, unlikely or occasionally it would say maybe. Sometimes it would say probably not. So is that um, an expression of your ambivalence about uh, advanced degrees? Well, um, so the, the more to the story is there's a companion website, which is should I get a PhD.com, um, where I, I interviewed nine, basically Twitter friends, some of whom have PhDs and some of whom don't, um, and, uh, kind of asked them the questions I wished I had asked before starting a PhD program. So I, yeah, uh, I read some of those. That's a nice site. Yeah. So I, I, uh, um, started two PhD programs, uh, one in math and one in operations research. And mm. in three and a half years, I came out of all that with uh, a master's degree in operations research and part of a master's degree in computer science and part of one in math. Um, oh, wow. So uh, I have this strong interest in the whole topic largely because I think I went into all of that extremely uninformed about yeah. why someone might do a PhD and what the value of it might be. Um, I think I was kind of starry eyed because I admired my professors in undergrad so much. I was like, well, these people I really admire have PhDs. If I want to be an admirable person, I should also get one. Right. Um, which is pretty bad reasoning in hindsight. Um, so, I, well, it's, I mean, but I think it's pretty typical, right? It's, I mean, it's yeah, people, so it's people typical. often do it because they, they think they need it and, you know, they, how could you get a job without it? And Right. Which is the, the, the question I want people to ask more is how am I going to get a job with it? Right. Um, because a lot of people, I think, I think this is especially like, and the site, the site is directed at like 22 year olds who are finishing up their undergrad degree. All they know is school. They're really good at school. They like school. And so they think, oh, well, I should just go do more school. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a lot of fields, getting a PhD is you're going to be doomed in terms of getting a job in the, in the humanities. I mean, the, the statistics are uh, really bad as terms of job options. Yeah, I saw, People say I saw a really grim. I saw a really grim chart, which was uh, almost constant tenure positions and the really huge swoop up of uh, PhDs being awarded. So, so, but the thing is like in the humanities, uh, even without a PhD, you're still going to have a hard time getting a job, right? Um, 
Sure. Although, I, I mean, I, I think the risk is that you're like overqualifying yourself. And maybe this isn't true. I don't have great evidence. But that uh, getting a job in the humanities is difficult. But getting a job in, the, in anything once you're overqualified for the humanities is potentially even more difficult. I, that's my, my reasoning. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's funny. I have, uh, along the same lines, I wrote a blog post in 2013 uh, entitled, Should You Get a PhD? And then the, yeah. the content of the blog post is no. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it's kind and, of the, the same so you're, like, you're like the Leibniz and Newton of our, of our day. Well, I mean, Joel would be the guy, except he just doesn't know that blogs are dead. So Twitter is uh, where it's at. So, well, so I, we, I update Twitter far more than my I do my blog, but uh, my best blog posts have gotten a lot more attention than my best tweets. So, yeah, well, yeah, um, I the, the the should you should I what is it should I get a PhD dot com is yeah. is probably my most successful project that I I've done in terms of. Um, traffic there it's linked from a number of sites where people have similar kind of things discussions of this and it gets a lot of traffic and, and I I mean I you know the, the Twitter is is pretty sarcastic and cranky but the interview site I really hope is helpful for people and I've gotten a lot of feedback that it is and I, you know I'm I'm glad there are people with PhDs in the world and people who wanting to do it but I I I really think there are a lot of people like me who did it really without a good reason to and and ended up I mean it, being somewhat unhappy I, I, and yeah as far as getting jobs when when we've been hiring for data science it it seems like it really depends i mean this is going to sound trite but just like you know is is large company x good to work for it really always depends on you know what team you land in and who you're going to be working with every day and whether they're actually going to guide you towards something that's relevant to making you know making a living and you know so that that it's to me i i don't know if i've seen any uh like any correlation between you know viability and having that degree yeah so i have a slightly different perspective especially in terms of data science jobs um and that's the, I, I think can, we should really uh we should mark this down this is the first time that joel has had a different perspective on something so well that's a I always have a different perspective. Um, <laughs> I, I think you can do really well with a PhD, uh, and I think you can do really well without a PhD. And yeah. at the margin, there are certain kinds of things that are easier to work on if you have that PhD experience, and there are probably certain kinds of things that are harder to work on if you have that experience. Um, but where it comes down a lot to me is the concept of opportunity cost. Okay, I'm going to spend five-ish years of my life you know, not making much money, uh, working all hours of the day, all days of the week, um, and, and kind of being an indentured servant in some ways and jumping through hoops. And if the place I'm going to get at the end of that is pretty similar to the place where I could go instead of that, then I have to really like five years of that lifestyle to make it worth my while. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, I, I, uh, I went to a public university for my second, well, both my PhD programs, and I... I, uh, as a result, my, the, my professor's salaries were public information. And I happened to know that after two years out of my graduate program, I was making more money than my PhD advisor, who's a tenured 
faculty member was making. Um, and I'm not sure that I ever considered the possibility uh, as a undergrad that, I don't know, I don't think I did a very good job of wanting to make money and really thinking about that. And so I was quite happy to be making $22,000 a year as a PhD student. I also think one of the things that's really the idea that is horrific that people float around is you shouldn't do a PhD unless you want to be in academia. Mm -hmm. And that, that is extremely troubling advice for young people to hear because they hear that as, Oh, if I get a PhD, then I can be in academia. But the, the converse isn't true there. And, and we've already mentioned this, but, but the academic job market is, really, really, really bad. Yeah. Uh, and so I would discourage anyone from thinking about a PhD program without thinking about what might my life be like if I don't get a decent academic job. Yeah. Right. Well, or in some sense... Okay with... Go ahead, Joel. Oh, I was going to say, in some sense, that's like a symptom of a broader problem, which is that people don't understand how to do conditional probabilities. Yeah. I, I yeah. don't. <laughs> should read my book. It talks about it. <laughs> I only read half of it. Uh, <laughs> right. I, I remember. <laughs> the, uh, you know, the one thing I've noticed, and it, it's not, it's not a constant, but it does seem like, you know, the right PhD program definitely instills, uh, you know, really solid research, research skills. So being able to go out and scour and scatter, gather, figure out what's actually relevant, what's actually good and, you know, what's garbage. And then, Look at what you can actually bring back into your jobs. That's that's a that's a real valuable skill. But it just it really does, you know. You got to wonder, like, um, like you guys were saying, like, what you know, what what's it going to get you, as far as you know, what what you want out of your career in your life. So well, I mean, so, well, some jobs that's a really good skill set, and then some jobs are better off if you can like hack shit together and throw yep. D three on top of it and impress potential customers. Yeah, yeah. The other thing is we have this a very bad selection bias in how we evaluate the quality of PhD programs, because I think we tend to look at people who went through PhD programs and were very successful. And we say, Oh, PhD program must equip you with X, Y, and Z. And we mm -hmm. don't look at people who tried a PhD and then ended up depressed alcoholics or right. <laughs> got a or PhD and are now like a barber in Charlottesville. Yeah, I mean that, and that's that's one thing I've noticed. And I mean, I've done a lot of interviews in in my current role, and you know, I've I've had PhDs on the phone who, you know, just I've had one guy who, you know, his 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 whole focus was um, uh, data mining and uh, recommenders, and you know, pretty pretty heavy overlay with with data science. And I asked him, um, I asked him, you know, what he knew about linear algebra, and, and he he refused to answer the question as though, you know, it was beneath him, but I, I he just, I don't think he understood it. So he actually yeah. hung up halfway through the interview. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, they're, they're, I might do that uh, too, if you ask me yeah. questions. <laughs> so, although but, I, I, will, I, will, I will say that when I, uh, started math grad school a long time ago, I went to, uh, UW, which is a big state school. And I asked the director of the graduate program, you know, what percentage of the people who start the program finish it? And he's like, Oh, you know, about a third. Mm -hmm. he, so he, he was he was pretty forthcoming with that information. He just didn't seem to care that much. Yeah, I I, I will say, uh, um, in my defense, also, 
I'm worried at, at sometimes that I just sound like cranky because like I tried a PhD program and I I couldn't do it. But don't worry, like, when, I you was come like, on this, when you come on this podcast, you're always like the least cranky person on this podcast. Yeah, you're yeah, an automatic serious person. But I, you know, so I, I'm offering these this feedback as someone who did really well in grad school. Like my grades were really good. I, I passed my operations research qualifying exams the first time. I had a great advisor, um, and. I push back on it and I push back, you know, with hyperbole sometimes because I want to get people to think about this, but I, I, uh, I really do have a sincere desire to help others think through this more carefully. Um, because I, uh, I've been there and I mean, I, I care guys. I really care. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're doing the, the equivalent of, you know, the suggestion of a gap year after high school which is something that when I was growing up, nobody did that. You know, nobody did that, yeah. did that at all. And I did terribly in my first round in college. Um, and I probably would have benefited by taking a year off and, and uh, doing something else. Cause I was not, I didn't want to go to college, but it was just the, I mean, I didn't want to go to the college I went to for complicated reasons. And, uh, and I, you know, I dropped out after two years and I might've been better off just going out and trying something and coming to it my own way. Yeah. And at the same time, I, uh, I I would be lying if I didn't routinely like look at PhD program websites and be like, ooh, I could I could <laughs> study the philosophy of statistics. That would be really valuable and interesting. I know it's like think, it's like when the ex smoker walks by and sees all the people smoking, and they're like, wow, you know, I, I could light one up. Yeah. Yeah, no, with, without a doubt, it is very tempting to me. So, um, changing, changing topics a little bit, uh, is the weather really different? Like up where you are, <laughs> I, I, I want the listeners to know that, that Joel did not prepare me for this just being, uh, all his height jokes coming out. These aren't, um, yeah, this is just the beginning. The, the weather but, is no, but nice there's another thing about there's another night. There's another interesting uh, thing about you, and that is you. You do a lot of uh, self retweeting, which wasn't allowed for a long time, and then and it was allowed. And it seems like you really, really took to that medium. Um, and so, <laughs> is that something that you know? It just pops in your mind that I mean, it, there's there's some sometimes it looks like you know you had a tweet from a year or two ago, and all of a sudden it's relevant again, but. Um, you know, it, but uh, along with that, you have a, you seem to have really good skills at search. So looking at stuff that you remember you did or someone else posted and being able to find that stuff. And there, do you have any tips for the view, for the, for the listeners? Yeah. So it, it all started because people used to ask questions on Twitter or say something. And I'd be like, well, I made that same comment. And I, and part of it, <laughs> Part of the motivation for me is I spent a long time on Twitter with basically no one listening to me. And I have a, you know, a good number of followers now, but for a long time, it was just like spammers that used to follow you in the, the old yeah. days. Um, and so I used to just kind of like somewhat jokingly just copy and paste the link to a tweet I had shared uh, in reply. I like to doing someone. that. Yeah, I like doing that. That's fun. And Twitter search used to be really bad, but there was a third party service where you could search your own tweet history. So I added an Alfred, which is like a, an application launcher in on OS X. I added an Alfred uh, quick search so I could search my own Twitter history. And then a year or so ago, Twitter added uh, the ability to search your own timeline. 
going all the way back, or all of Twitter, all the way back to the beginning, mm. which is really powerful. And so you can just type from colon and then your handle and you can search your own timeline. Um, Why don't they, they and, should put a, a tooltip on that search bar. Yeah, well, you can go into the advanced search and it has, mm. it explains it more. But you can also like filter by date really powerfully and you can oh. you can do a little Boolean stuff. And I, I don't know just if it's just... I usually just go on Google and that's that's successful. Oh, I've never even tried that. But and I, that's another one where you, you need a tooltip and you just do site colon Twitter right. and what you're looking for. Have you ever admit, thought about trying to automate that process? Like, you know, write one bot which scours the news or maybe a Twitter feed to find out what's topical today and then have another piece that knows all of your tweets? I have thought about that. Um, I... I <laughs> <laughs> I already spend enough time on hacky, stupid things, and so I have not put the time into that. But no, I, so, no such thing. Yeah. Uh, so recent, well, a few months back, I wrote a Bash script that will generate a Twitter search URL that shows me all my tweets from one day ago, and you have to like manually generate like from from until clauses for every day. So it just like loops through all the past seven years or something and generates this search. So I have this Alfred thing where I can type uh, command space and pull up Alfred and, and type old tweets and it just loads all my tweets from the day. So most days I load that and I just go through and if there's some interesting stuff, I mean, you know, Twitter is so ephemeral and, and I do think people actually can say interesting things in, uh, 140 characters and sometimes I do and so that allows me to sort of go back and pick out the best things and, and share them again or sometimes it's think, funny to see like how things change but don't really change or I think know, my how, favorite one is is the one you did about uh, putting a putting a ring on it yeah the, well obviously that's uh, that's I mean it combined Beyonce and linear algebra so it's, yeah it was a winner or a abstract algebra I mean um, so it's really hard to beat that I mean I love math jokes uh, you guys all enjoy math and humor uh so i'm sure you understand no my uh, wife even liked it once i explained it <laughs> so so are, are you are you long-term bullish on twitter or, or long-term uh skeptical uh, i i i have no idea what the future of twitter is but i really love twitter love twitter i love i mean i wouldn't know you guys if it wasn't from twitter well That's you know who, who knows what your the, life would be better yeah. <laughs> Who knows what the counterfactual is, but you know, I've gotten jobs basically my last 3 jobs through Twitter. Um I love it for networking and entertainment and you know, I just learn things. I you know, occasionally click links and read blog posts and like, oh, I I know about a lot of data science tools and open source tools. Yeah. Uh, it's one, really one it's of, really made made the world smaller in that way. Yeah, one of my uh, prized tweets is uh, something like "Data science is the art of putting things into your into production at your company that you've only read about on Twitter." Yep. And you know, it's kind of a joke, but it's kind of true too, right? Like uh, we we use things all the time that we just we learned about because somebody tweeted about it. I just legitimately recommended a project that's still in a, in a incubation uh, for for a client, <laughs> which yeah. you know, and you know, was it was it Mahout? No, 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 <laughs> no, that's out of incubation. It's still not in the attic. So, uh, no, it was, uh, I think it was, um, airflow, cool. uh, ETL tool. I, I'm a current 
learning currently learning airflow, so I don't really want to go there. Um, oh, okay, I take it back. Uh, but so I hope you know if Twitter doesn't, we, we don't really know what the what so happens to social media networks long term. But I hope we can all move to a, a similar place. If I mean the same place, you know, if, if things happen and Twitter dies for whatever reason. I hope I can find a lot of the same people again on Google it's, Plus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Good luck. The uh, I, it's it's funny you mentioned that uh, you know Twitter's kind of changed the job search process, and uh, you know I know we all have fun fun inter- fun interview stories and things like that. Do you have any any you'd like to share with the listeners? <laughs> I, I do. Um, uh, as you guys know, one of my my favorite interview stories is. Uh, I started interviewing for a job that I think I found out about through Twitter um, and was offered the job and was offered more money than I've ever been offered anywhere else, which was quite flattering. Um, But I thought it was weird that the job offer uh, didn't have anything about uh, vacation time or (laughs) how any of that worked. And no one had ever mentioned it at all during um, uh, the interview process. So it's at least at least an orange flag, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah, but for the money, I was like, well, if they, you know, if I get ten days a year, that's a lot of money. Um, <laughs> so I, I even pulled up the email so I can read to you the the very simple question I asked. I see it said hi and to the re- recruiter or whoever. A few questions. I see no mention of PTO, company holidays, vacation, sick days, etc. Can you please send me the current policy on that? You know, not adversarial. Not, you know, and I asked a few other questions about equipment and uh, you know w- what are the number of outstanding shares, those kind of things. Um, oh, okay. And but so, nothing I mean, seemed, within bounds, right? Very within bounds. It was there was I nothing. I would be fine with those questions. Well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would have said, "Oh, sorry, we forgot to we forgot to include that." Here you go. Absolutely. Um, so, I, I get a reply from the recruiter. We have an open vacation policy. What that means is, if we do not have a set number of days, we give. Okay, that's fine. And then she says, "If it becomes a problem, we would speak to you about it. We just ask <laughs> that you let us know about time off in advance, if possible." So that was a little concerning that it was approached in the negative like if it's a problem we'll talk to you not in the positive like we want you to live your life um so and and there were some other she answered my other questions um so i i uh emailed the the ceo who i'd also been talking to in this process and i said i have another offer on the table i'm really having a hard time deciding you know i was just trying to be honest with him i i don't like a lot of pretense uh, I asked some more questions about what I would be working on. And then I said, I understand you have an open vacation policy. Can you give me a better sense of how that works in practice? What is a normal amount of vacation for an employee to take? It was a bit disconcerting that it was mostly explained to me in the negative. And I, I quoted back <laughs> what, you know, I, I was just trying to be fair. I, I, I was still very interested in this job at this point. Um, and the CEO, let's see, 18 minutes later replies, <laughs> The most unbelievable email I've ever received. Tim, quite honestly, given your questions and the fact you're considering other options, company name may not be the best choice for you. I was pretty transparent about working hard being one of the things we valued most. 
Also, I want to hire people who see company name as the obvious choice for them. Please don't take this the wrong way. We were impressed <laughs> with you. We were impressed with you and thought you'd be a great fit here. Thanks again for considering us. Uh, and so, did you take it the wrong way, or I mean, I I have never spoken to him ever again and never heard from him again. So I assume that's the way he wanted me to take it. What's the right way? Uh, to just take the job and yeah, shut up. I have, I have I, no idea. I've never but, understood I mean, that. I, it just blew my mind, uh, and uh, you know, and I tell everyone, and they're like, "Oh, you dodged a bullet." And I mean, the answer, I mean, that's true. I did dodge a bullet, but like that. This is still someone who is recruiting my friends, and I, I, I've not—I've decided not to publicly denounce them, but I uh, privately will share with anyone and discourage people from taking a job there because that—that is not someone you want to work for. Yeah, so uh, I have a similar story, not as, not as good, but um, I got a recruiter a few weeks ago who emailed me um, about a job and. This happens with some frequency, and you know they never tell you the name of the company. They're like, "Oh, you know, venture backed and downtown Seattle and ping pong table and all this crap." Uh, but but I've gotten pretty good at trying to figure out what are the statistically improbable phrases in the description they sent me, so that I can right. kind of Google and figure out what the company is. So I went right. and I looked at this company, um, and they're talking about you know the, the the work is challenging and the hours are long, but we're in it to build a great company. Uh, so I wrote him back and I said, you know what, uh, I'm at a point in life where the hours can be long is, is not an enticement. It's, it's a turnoff. So, uh, sorry. Absolutely. I, yeah, there, there's a, uh, well, there, there's some studies that argue that, uh, long hours are, are largely something employees use to signal their loyalty to a company. And yeah. I feel like in a, in technical fields where mental Effort is paramount. Uh, I I don't have the mental stamina to work fourteen hour days, and if if that's what that's someone the same needs, thing with, same thing with hard labor. I, same thing with hard labor. You need to rest. Yeah, yeah. I, I really like to associate me sitting uh, here drinking my hint water, tapping on keys with hard labor. That's that's very much how I feel. So. Oh no, I'm saying <laughs> <laughs> if you if you can call it work, right. Right, right. So, so Tim, you, you work remotely, um, which I did. means you work on your porch or basement, or I, I work. Um, so, I work mostly remotely at the moment. My company um, actually has a, a local office, but my team is all further away than I am, and we we largely work from home and then come in as we need. But uh, so, I, I have a bonus room that I work in, and I work when mornings are. are Warm enough or cool enough, I sit outside on my porch a good chunk of a lot of days, which I enjoy thoroughly. What's the what's the best part? What's the best part and the worst part of working remotely as a data scientist? Um, the best part for me, honestly, is that I have a quiet place where I can think. Because uh, think, I mean, you know, thinking hard is an important part of my job, and uh, I think open floor plan offices are a, a difficult place to think. Um, yeah, no, no, that, that's wrong. The, the right answer was commutes. Commutes <laughs> suck. Yeah. That's another so one. That's, yep. No, I do hate commuting, though my commute to my office here is, is really not bad at all. Um, although I, I did get bus sick on the, on the bus riding in. Uh, recently, like, like but puke bus sick or just like no, I just, felt, just felt just felt like it. I was trying to work on the bus, 
But uh, yeah, I live about six miles away, and uh, in Raleigh, people leave the city to work in the Research Triangle Park. So oh, yeah. getting into the city where my office is is actually quite easy. Yeah, but um, the worst part uh, for me is sometimes I just get a little kind of cabin fever being at home all the time. When I first started working from home, my desk was next to my bed and I lived alone. Um, <laughs> and so I basically never left the same room. And that was a bad situation. Um, even still living that alone. Violates, that violates Geneva conventions, doesn't it? It might. Even after that, I lived alone and worked in a separate room. I got a, a two-bedroom place. That was really good. Um, and I got married last year. And so now, you know, I at least see my wife, which is great. Um, uh, I, I enjoy that a lot. But sometimes I just need to get out of my house. Um, yeah. Yeah, I found that too with working working from home. Is it, it you can the well the commute is short, but then sometimes it you know it's easy to keep working. You know, so you just there's stuff coming in still six, seven at night. And, you know, if you're neurotic and obsessive, uh, you know, any, any notification that's not handled is something that you feel you need to. my wife just last night told me, uh, she wished that she, (laughs) she wished I had a more regular schedule. So fair point. But, you know, I think with that though, with in the day of smartphones and everyone just having laptops, that line is becoming increasingly blurry to where that's no less true Mm -hmm. for, other employees mm-hmm. um, for anyone who's doing like computer work, they are supposed to take their laptops home. Um, but even then, like, you know, I, I actually, some, one of the challenges for me sometimes is I like finish working and then walk up the stairs and my wife is home. And sometimes I, I actually miss having a little bit of a commute just that I need to like detox from work a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, I might just need to start walking around the block or something. Mm-hmm. It was like, get, my work, my wife will say, "Oh, you're you're still in your post work haze because I'll just be like fighting with airflow all afternoon, and I'll be in a this daisy mood." But I I love working from home, and and you know one of the more important things is that I don't really work from home. I work remotely, and I can go wherever I want. So if I want to like go work at a coffee shop, I can do that. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, we go visit my in laws, and um, I can you know, work from their house or, or do something like that. And it's, it's no problem. And, you know, as long as I'm showing up to my meetings, no one's really worried about it. Yeah. Uh, I got to, I got to work remotely. Works. I got to work remotely over Thanksgiving from Los Angeles. That was fun. Yeah. I mean, you, you never have to celebrate a holiday again when you work remotely. Nope. It's great. Nope. Always on. That does sound appealing. It's yeah. great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so I think we're, uh, we're starting to run low on time. I, I just had one last question. Uh, which is, what's it like being the first person to know when it's raining? <laughs> Do you uh, have like a bathroom book of jokes? What? Uh, no, I, I keep I math think, books in my bathroom. Okay. I do too, actually. Well, physics books. But, well, I guess both. But I think um, Joel is just going through and reading off my uh, my uh, okay. <laughs> list of questions I've been asked. Because, uh, oh, you should, yeah, you should read out the URL for that so listeners can go visit. Actually, um, I, I didn't look at that. I should have. It's do oh, you? I think. Do you play? Sorry. Do you play ball? But there was Tumblr. another thing that we wanted. We wanted Tumblr. to ask you, and that was why is your blog called Stigler Diet? Oh, yeah. Um. So the Stigler Diet uh, 
problem. George Stigler, who is the economist that the University of Chicago worked on uh, in the early days when people are studying linear optimization, like uh, linear constraint optimization, they were thinking like, could you design a diet that's optimally like cheap and healthy? Um, and uh, so that's that's what Stigler diet's all about. I think there's a paper that George Stigler published. I think it's largely just a, a way to demonstrate what how linear programming can be used. But um, actually, as with all good things in life, that name came through Twitter. Um, I tweeted back in 2011. I was looking for a blog name, and David Curran, uh, whose name I am Red Dave, who's uh, my favorite Irishman who I think works for IBM on, on Watson uh, and studied operations research uh, was suggesting some great blog names. And he, he said stiglerdiet.com is available or something. And uh, I thought it was, it, it sounded catchy. And so I think one of my first blog posts actually is about um, uh, an optimization based diet model. Yeah, May 9th, 2000, uh, sorry, January 9th, 2012, Carrots, Oatmeal, and Operations Research. I wrote a blog post about my classmate Sounds at UVA. Sounds delicious. <laughs> my, my classmate at UVA in the math department, uh, his, his skin was turning orange because all he was eating was carrots and, and oatmeal <laughs> and, and beer and marijuana sure. um, and amphetamines. You're but, not supposed um, to eat that. Okay. <laughs> but I'm not even his his skin actually was turning orange because he was eating so many carrots because he was like oh, carrots and oatmeal are healthy and cheap, and so so is amphetamines. Right? <laughs> I don't know if they're cheap, but I'm, I'm not informed. Um, but so I wrote a blog post showing you know how to optimize your intake of carrots and oatmeal and explaining uh, linear programming in the process. So you cool. Can, uh, I forgot. Well, you have that. to, a, have to nice catch place. up on on the back catalog. So, so what what's your uh, what's your one piece of advice to people who want to get started in data science or thinking about getting into data science? Um, don't. No. Uh, no. I mean, look, data science is great. We all like to complain about it, but we also like to sit at computers and make money. Um, you know, so I wrote this blog post. Uh, how I became a data scientist despite being a math major that largely is saying math isn't enough. You need other things. Uh, and I do think it's really important for people to understand math and statistics and stuff. But a lot of what a lot of us do is um, fight with computers to get our programs to do what we want or get our dependencies installed or to get our servers provisioned and all these things. Uh, and you can read about that, but, uh, it's always funny what, to me when, when people try to say that, you know, 90% of data science is data engineering and, and then, you know, they want to separate it out into a different team that's data engineers versus data scientists. And it's just not realistic to, to draw a strict line there. Yeah. And, and, and with that, I mean, for me, a lot of my success has been like, I understand these things partially because I had some computer science classes, but a lot of it for me has been like, fighting to understand how things work and how to fix things and just not giving up until you fix them. And even doing that in your private life, you know, outside of your work, you know, when you have a computer thing, figure out how to script something and then figure out how to get your cron to run on your Mac and, and yep. like just figure these things out and 
that, that has been the most important transferable skill. I mean, I, I one of my other uh, tweeted personal aphorisms is uh, like that tenacity is my most important transferable skill. Like I just, just, I can keep Googling my error messages and until I figure out what's going on. That's solid advice. And read Joel's book, obviously. And read my book, of course. Of course. And well, what, book, if it ever comes out. Right. What? How, how's the book going, Andrew? It's good. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> One of these days. I can't wait to read it. I can't, <laughs> I can't wait to be a technical reviewer for it. Guess what? You might have to wait. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Um, well, yeah, thanks Thanks for your time, Tim. It's been a pleasure. Uh, it's, the pleasure is all mine. Uh, and, you know, we... Uh, you know, it's probably easy for people to find you on, on, uh, social media. Uh, we gave them one URL if you want to TD hopper. Yeah. You can find me on there you uh, go. twitter.com slash TD hopper, TD hopper.com, Instagram.com slash TD hopper, LinkedIn everywhere.com slash TD hopper, Pinterest, Snapchat. Yeah. <laughs> I just deleted Snapchat. Instagram is the, is the new thing. Um, yeah. There's probably been some newer ones that, that I don't even know about. Grinder. I don't know. I'm not as hip as you. All right. Well, with that, episode one is in the can. This is episode two. Right. Episode two. <laughs> the first real interview, though. Right. The first one that I had a guest. It wasn't just us, like, jabbering back and forth. Joshing. Joking. And so that's a wrap. Make sure to tell your friends to listen. Make sure to check out our website, adversariallearning.com. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, uh, adversarial underscore L. If you'd like to follow us individually, I'm at Joel Groose on Twitter. Uh, Andrew is at AKM. And today's guest, Tim Hopper, is at TD Hopper. Uh, so thanks again. And I know you want to hear that theme music again, so here it is.